All right, welcome, welcome. Thanks for coming tonight, guys. I have the distinct honor in introducing Dr. Haddad. So uh, I will give the formal introduction, and then I'll give the informal introduction afterwards. Okay. So Professor Haddad, again, who is now newly Dr. Haddad, how many days is it now? Ten days. He's an associate professor of Dalmatic Theology and director of lay ministry programs at Notre Dame Seminary, New Orleans. He's a co-founder and co-director of the St. Louis the Ninth Art Society and a scholar associate of the Society for Catholic Scientists. He's originally from Homa and graduated from LSU in 2012 with a BS in psychology and a BA in philosophy. After undergrad, he earned a Master's of Arts in Theological Studies from Notre Dame Seminary while also serving at Archbishop Rommel as a campus minister and Mount Carmel Academy as a theology teacher. <clears throat> and he recently completed his Ph.D. in systematic theology from the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Professor Haddad currently lives in Kenner with his wife Shannon and their two daughters, Lily and Elizabeth. Yay. So when were you a freshman? 2009 or 2008? Sophomore year, I was associate pastor here at Christ the King, and uh, Professor Haddad at the time was a sophomore student. And um, let's just say he, I'm pretty surprised where he ended up. Pretty big goofball of a guy, 100%. He actually lied and told everyone that I was 21 years old at the time, when I was actually 28, 29, when I was, <laughs> and he believed me for how long? Like, oh, no, not a day, so long, so yeah, great, this is great, Jordan's a fantastic man, great speaker, uh, absolute gift to have you back here, so thanks so much, Dr. Haddad. All right, well, thanks for all. Thanks for coming out tonight. Um, Father Andrew said, my name is Dr. Haddad, and I'm going to be talking tonight about Catholicism and culture. And then afterwards, um, we'll do some Q&A at the end, and I'll also share for a couple of minutes about some of the different uh, theology programs that I direct at Notre Dame Seminary um, for lay men and women who seek to serve the church um, in various roles in parishes and schools, if any of you are interested. So, Cardinal Francis George, the former Archbishop of Chicago and mentor of Bishop Robert Barron of Word on Fire, once shared that during a meeting with Pope John Paul II, the late Roman pontiff, after listening patiently to his status report on the archdiocese, asked him one single question. How are you influencing the culture? John Paul II could have asked him any number of questions about improving priestly formation, strengthening Catholic families, revitalizing Catholic schools. He instead asked Cardinal George about his efforts to influence and ultimately redeem the culture of Chicago and the surrounding towns and neighborhoods. Why is this? Well, as Catholics, we believe that culture is in many ways upstream from the many political, economic, and social issues that plague our society. So whereas politics seeks to adjudicate between the different types of laws and policies that we should have as a state and a nation, 
And economics is concerned with such things as businesses and wages and profit and the GDP. The realm of culture is concerned with things like, how do we as a community understand our life together? What does it mean to be human? And how can we best create a society that gives life to what is true, good, and beautiful and the various values and realities that we hold most dear? These are the deeper questions that, depending on how we answer them and allow them to shape the life of our communities, influence how we approach other things like politics and economics and entertainment and education and everything else. If we were to peer below the surface of the countless disagreements in our country over politics and economics and all of the different things that you know, are in conflict between progressives and conservatives and liberals, what we would actually discover, I think, is a clash of cultures that manifests as a heated conflict over this or that issue. And even within each of these different ideological groupings, there's a battle being waged between what John Paul II called a culture of life and a culture of death, or what Pope Francis calls a throwaway culture. We Catholics, of course, seek to give life and rise to a culture of life, which respects the dignity of every person from womb to tomb and everything in between. And we know that we're not a perfect church, but at our best, we live the belief that every human life is sacred, that this created order is fundamentally good, that there exists a thing like right and wrong, and that love and mercy are stronger than sin, suffering, and death. And we oppose the culture of death, which consists of the mentality that people are to be used rather than loved, that ends justify the means, that things are more important than people, and that life is ultimately meaningless, or the meaning, whatever meaning it is that you give to it. And so when John Paul II asked Cardinal George, how are you influencing the culture? What he's really asking him is, how are you cutting through the noise, as it were, of the various turmoils that your local community is experiencing and getting to the heart of the matter? For the type of culture that we're able to build will inevitably inform and determine how we as a people relate to one another in all the other ways. Furthermore, when it comes to the realm of culture, I would argue that it itself is downstream from the more fundamental reality of religion. How we relate to one another, to ourselves, and to the world, and the different ways in which we express this relationship in the realm of culture is influenced by who, what, and how we worship. It is religion that answers these deeper questions, for it seeks to address the question of what is the ultimate foundation of reality whether it be an all-good, all-wise, all-powerful, Trinitarian communion of divine love, or a pantheon of nefarious lesser gods, as people used to believe in antiquity, or that the universe is, is itself divine, it's pantheistic, or that the universe is just that, just a, just a fact, a mindless universe that has no inherent meaning or purpose or whether it might be something like money, power, honor, or pleasure that is the ultimate good of our lives. So depending on how we think about this ultimate foundation of reality is what sets the framework for the meaning and the values within a particular culture. It's what gives life to the culture in which we all live in one way or another. 
When understood in this way, then, we can see that there's actually a direct line connecting such things like politics and economics, entertainment, culture, and religion. The transformation of our politics, for example, is largely dependent upon the type of culture that we're able to form and transform, which has everything to do with who, what, and how we worship. So with this being said, I'll take the next 30 minutes or so to talk about two topics. First, we'll reflect together on the nature of the church and the event of the incarnation, so as to consider what it would mean to build an authentically Catholic culture, which is the only sure path forward to a holistic culture of life. And then the second half of the presentation, I'm going to talk about what we can do to go about creating this culture amongst our family, our friends, and our local communities. So, St. Augustine one of the great early church fathers of our Catholic faith, once famously wrote in a book entitled The City of God that our world and history are defined by the existence of what he says are two competing cities, by which he meant not actual cities like Baton Rouge or Hammond or New Orleans, but two overarching dispositions, two ways of life, two communities with which we are affiliated as a people. These cities are defined, says Augustine, first and foremost, by their loves. For it's always the person or the thing that we love, that we center our lives around, that defines who we are and how we live. On the one hand, there is what St. Augustine calls the city of man, which is marked by a disordered love of self in the things of this world, by violence and disarray. And on the other hand, there is what he calls the city of God, whose defining features are a properly ordered love of God and of neighbor, of peace and virtue and joy. And while it might be tempting to think of these two cities as existing separately and side by side in a binary sort of way, one here and the other one over there, like Canada's over here, America's over there, St. Augustine instead argued that these two cities, the city of God and the city of man, are intermixed and intermingled, both geographically and even personally. So saints and sinners walk hand in hand. And amongst the sinful, there are future saints and seeds of goodness that are waiting to take root. Just as among earthly saints, there are still sinful tendencies to be conquered and redeemed lest we abandon the gift that Christ offers us. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the famous Russian novelist, had a keen insight into this reality. Having served in the Soviet Union's Red Army during World War II, he became a severe critic of Joseph Stalin and was sentenced to eight years in a labor camp and eventually even had his citizenship revoked and was forced to flee to West Germany and then to America. And yet, despite this horrendous experience with the Second World War, with Soviet Russia and communism, he was acutely aware that good and evil, right, the city of man and the city of God, were not separate realities divisible according to nations and peoples, but present in the heart of each and every one of us. And so he wrote, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. 
and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. Or to use biblical imagery, sheep and goats, weeds and wheat, exist side by side, both in the world and in the depths of our own lives. And it's only when Christ comes again that he will unequivocally separate these two cities. St. Augustine's image of the two cities is helpful for us today because our country and our local communities have been given an opportunity to urgently re-examine the city to which we belong, our citizenship, and the types of culture that each of these different cities produce, keeping in mind that the de facto culture in which we all live is itself always a mixture of both good and bad. It's always a mixture of the city of God and the city of man. But when all is said and done, do we belong to the city of man, which is defined by love of self and the things of this world over and against God and our neighbors? Or do we belong to God's city, which is defined by love of God and love of neighbor, even to the point of our own discomfort and death to self? And whether we realize it or not, we all belong to one of these two cities when all is said and done. And it's according to our citizenship that we will be judged when we meet Christ face to face. There's no neutral ground between the two. At the end of the day, it's either one or the other. When we think about our own local community and the culture in which we live from this perspective, what we can see is that the world is in some sense a battleground because it is not simply identical to the city of man. Rather, the world in which we exist is that over which the city of God and the city of man are contending. Sure, the world as it currently exists is under the dominion of the evil one and its groaning and labor pains awaiting the release of its bondage to decay, as St. Paul says. But it's also the product of an all-good God who actually became part of this world, not to condemn it, but to save it, as St. John says. God, of course, will achieve the final victory, which has already been inaugurated by Christ's life, death, and resurrection. But even though the war has been decided, there are still many battles to be fought. Just as the Battle of New Orleans was fought in January of 1815, even though Great Britain and the U.S. had already um, ended the war and signed a peace treaty two weeks earlier in December of 1814. And so as Catholics, we're often tempted to think that we have to to sharply distinguish the church from the world and to think that the physical and social world outside the walls and doors of our churches, that's the problem. That's the enemy. But this just isn't the case when we we see it from the perspective of St. Augustine. And it's Augustine's thought that captures the church's self-understanding of her relationship to the world. The world itself is not the fallen and corrupt, right, dare I say, evil opponent of the church. Rather, it's the spirit of rebellion against God, of disordered self-love, of vice, and the use of others, of hatred of goodness and truth. That is the opponent with which we rage, we wage spiritual warfare. As St. Augustine, or sorry, St. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, We are not contending against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, 
against the powers, against the world rulers of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so when we think about the relationship between the church and culture, we shouldn't think that the de facto culture of the world is in itself intrinsically disordered and evil. And therefore, we should either desperately run from it or replace it entirely. Rather, what we want to do as Catholics is to redeem the world and the culture so that it can become what God has intended it to be all along. We can do this by purifying the culture around us of those elements that are the result of its being influenced by the city of man and refashioning it so that it can better express the reality of the city of God by recognizing the good, the true, and the beautiful that really is already present there but placing it within a context of grace, within a context of revelation. And it is in light of this revelation of Christ, after all, that the true and the deeper meaning of the human person in this created order finds its most concrete and final expression because grace perfects and heals our created natures. It does not destroy or replace it. So this is how we should think about the relationship between the church and the world. What we'll now speak about is the nature of culture and what this means, what it means to speak of a, of a Catholic in culture informed by the incarnation. So every society, no matter how large or small, however ancient or new, is simultaneously both the recipient and the steward of a particular culture. Although there are many ways that you could define what a culture is, we can describe it for our purposes as a community's common expression of the ideas and values that characterize their shared life together and embody its understanding of the meaning of life, God, and the world. It's a general enough explanation of culture, so it's applicable to everyone, right? It manifests itself in how we speak and relate to one another, the art that we admire and surround ourselves with, the music that we listen to, the stories that we tell, and the movies, books, and TV shows that are meaningful for us, right? the values and the ideals that we hold dear, and the good or goods that we place at the center of our lives and therefore worship. So just as we all dress, act, and talk in a certain way in order to express and to communicate to others our perceived meaning of life, so too does every society manifest its shared meaning through its cultural traditions and customs. But when there's no commonly shared meaning of life, the universe and of God, then we have a breakdown and a loss of culture. And when we lose our common culture, we're no longer a common people, but simply discrete individuals and groups that live alongside one another, like ships passing in the night, or at worst, like enemies who are at each other's throats. So in South Louisiana in particular, how many of y'all are from South Louisiana? Probably most of y'all. Our culture, at its best, is defined by its generosity of spirit, right? Our love of life and the unique food and music that we listen to, our festivals, our tailgates, our welcoming of strangers and outsiders, our willingness to share with what we have with one another, even when faced in hard with hard times, and our unwavering hope that despite whatever might befall us, life is still worth living. As Chris Rose, the, the longtime t- 
Times-Picayune writer once said, and he captured this so perfectly, Dear America, I suppose we should introduce ourselves. We're South Louisiana. You probably already know that we talk funny and listen to strange music and eat things you'd probably hire an exterminator to get out of your yard. We dance even if there's no radio. We drink at funerals. And we talk too much, and we laugh too loud, and live too large, and frankly, we're suspicious of those who don't, right? If that's not Louisiana in a nutshell. Our worst, though, right, this is the good things of our culture, besides the drinking at funerals, unless it's after. At our worst, though, our culture is defined by its consumerist mentality, right? We live to buy. We live to consume our willingness to use and abuse others, even for our own benefit, like the scourge of pornography in our lives, our overindulgence in alcohol and drugs, our hypersexualization of the human body, and our unwillingness to seek after the truth and to do the good because it might impinge on my autonomy and freedom. And as good Americans, we love our autonomy and our freedom. And so while all of this talk of a, of a culture of South Louisiana might seem self-evident to us because we live in and have experienced it, I wonder how many of us realize that the church herself embodies a particular culture in life because she too is a society. The church, we would actually say as Catholics, is actually the society established by Christ, which is meant to envelop and absorb all the other societies on earth without, at the same time, robbing them of their own independence. So as Jesus says, the kingdom of God, which is ultimately the church here, can be likened to a tiny mustard seed, which grows into a large tree, and in which the many birds of the air, right, that is the nations and the peoples of the earth, may reside and build their nests. Our Catholic culture, like our South Louisiana culture, is defined by particular attitudes, ideals, and values, like our love and appreciation for the good things of the earth, our love of truth and goodness and beauty, our hope and faith that good triumphs over evil, that love and mercy are stronger than sin and worldly power, that suffering and death can in fact be redemptive, and that our willingness to see the dignity in the poor and the weak and the vulnerable even though we as a church have failed at this many, many times over the course of our history. Because Christianity is a a religion rooted in salvation history, these ideals and values are not the result of, of philosophical speculation, right? They're not the result of armchair theology. They're the result of God's self revelation in history. So things like the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, the pilgrimage of the Israelite people, from slavery through the desert to the promised land for 40 years, the incarnation of the Son of God in the womb of of Mary of Nazareth, the birth of Christ in Bethlehem of all places, and the death of Christ outside the city gates. These are all divine historical events that have shaped our understanding as a church of who and what we are, What what our mission is, what our life is. And so while, while each of those different events merit, you know, a, a lot of contemplation, each in their own right, I'm just going to say a word about the Incarnation, since that one is at the heart of, of our Catholic faith and this idea of, a, of a, a truly Catholic culture. So in the Incarnation, the Son of God became like us in all ways but sin. 
in the person of Jesus, God, God hasn't simply spoken or acted in a generic way, but he's freely and irrevocably become one of us, taking within his divine life our shared human nature. As a true human, we can say, right, without, without lying, although this sounds absurd if you, if you take a step back and, and really contemplate what we're saying, but as Catholics, as Christians, we say that, that God thought with a human mind. He still thinks with a human mind. He walked with human legs. God spoke with a human voice. God experienced the full range of emotions. God has a human face, and he loves with a human heart. So whereas the people of every time and place have looked upon the beauty and the orderliness and the, the marvels of this world as manifestations of the existence and the goodness of God, in Christ, we're not simply told that God exists, but we actually tangibly come into contact with him. We've seen his face. We've heard his words. And beyond these sort of preliminary reflections, which are scandalous if you really think about what we're saying, the incarnation reveals many other things, one of which is that this created order, this world in which we live, right, which is the foundation of a culture which we're trying to form, this world, this universe of ours, it's not as far from God as we tend to think. Whereas in times past, it was common to think that in order to ascend to God, you had to purify yourself of this world. The incarnation shatters that idea, and it turns it on its head. In Christ, God not only walked among us, but he spoke our language. He ate our food, he drank our wine, he laughed at our corny jokes, he celebrated at our weddings, and he himself experienced sorrow and death. And it's for this reason that, that as Catholics, wherever it is that we have walked the earth, we carry within us a genuine love of life, of festivity, of sacramental worship. Because this world, strictly speaking, right, this world in which we live, it is not the problem. Rather, it is our disordered love. It is the fallenness of the world in which we live. The influence that the evil one exercises upon it in us, that's the issue. And so we don't despise the universe and the world as such because it only exists because at every moment, God loves it and thinks it into existence. If God were to stop thinking about us, about this world, this universe, we wouldn't be here. The fact that we're still here is a testament to God's love, not just for us as individuals, but for his creation as a whole. And so it's for this reason that Hilaire Belloc, who's a famous um, Catholic historian and writer, wrote this little poem. Wherever the Catholic sun doth shine, there's laughter and dancing and good red wine. At least I've always found, always found it so. Benedicamus Domino, right? Let us bless the Lord. So because Jesus Christ is the God through whom all things are made, and all things are at every moment sustained in their existence, he concretely reveals to us the deeper meaning and purpose of this world in which we live. Right, the deeper meaning and purpose of this created order, um, by, his, by his appearance on the world stage, he gives us this deeper insight. He's the key that unlocks its mystery and its meaning. 
By his life, death, and resurrection, he not only reveals to each and every one of us what it means to be human, right, because he's the final Adam. He, when we want to know what does it mean to be human, we look to him. But he also reveals to us the true meaning and purpose of our communities, of our culture. And then he gives us the means to redeem it. This is so because we as humans, we are the reason culture exists. We're the generator of culture. And we stand at its heart both as its protagonist as well as its ultimate reason for its existence. If humans disappear from the face of the earth, there is no culture anymore. And because Jesus has reconstituted the human race through, his new covenant, through the new covenant, by the shedding of his blood, by his death, by his resurrection, he's extended his life and presence into the world through both the hidden activity of the Holy Spirit and his visible church, which is his body, through her liturgical life. It is this church, you and me, it's our church, who are called to be redeemed humanity, the leaven to the world's dough, the salt to the world's flavorlessness, and the light to the world's darkness. And when we as Christians and Catholics answer the call to be who we are meant to be, we'll not only set the world on fire, like St. Catherine of Siena says, but we'll also give birth to an authentic culture rooted in the true meaning and purpose of human life. And so in this final part of my presentation, I'm going to now turn to consider how we can go about creating this Catholic culture informed by the incarnation in our daily lives. So before getting into specifics, I just want to preface this by saying that we have to, we have to be reasonable here. We have to be realistic. We have to recognize that there's no one silver bullet solution to the problems that we're facing today. There's no single program, right, if only there was, that we could implement that would transform overnight our local community or our campus. Our current culture has so much momentum behind it, right? It's so thoroughly rooted itself in our own lives, in our imaginations, and in our customs that it is, a, as a whole, it's, it's largely out of our hands and beyond our control as individuals. So we have to be realistic about what's possible, but that's okay. We have to simply commend our larger culture and society to God and faith and prayer, and then set about tilling the field that the Lord has, in fact, given us, that he has called us to. And so at the beginning of my lecture this evening, I mentioned that the two cities, right, the city of God and the city of man, that pervade life in this world are defined first and foremost by what? Their loves, right? Because it's always the person or the thing that we love, that we center our lives around, that defines who we are and how we live. So love, then, is where we must begin when considering how we might form a culture worthy of the city of God. And I don't mean love as, an, as a mere emotion or as a fleeting feeling. Rather, by love, I mean the experience which we have all known at one point or another. When something or someone has so captured our hearts, our minds, and our imaginations that we're thereby willing, that we're compelled to structure the remainder of our life around it. Father Pedro Arupe, SJ, the former superior general of the Jesuits, understood well this deeper meaning of love as it pertains to God, and expressed it in this way. Nothing is more practical than finding God. 
than falling in love in a quite absolute final way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you do with your evenings, how you spend your weekends, what you read, whom you know, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love, stay in love, and it will decide everything. So this is a much deeper meaning of love than we'll find, um, you know, if you were to ask someone on the street on a random day. But it's a reality that none of us can escape. Each and every one of us, I would bet everything I have on this, so loves something or someone or some idea or some ideal that whether we recognize it or not shapes the whole of our lives. For some, it's the love of pleasure. For others, it's the love of honor or money or power or another person or some combination of these that's really pulling the strings, as it were, of our lives, consciously or unconsciously influencing the direction of our life choices and how we understand our meaning, our purpose, and our worth. And so the first thing we have to keep in mind when thinking about how to create an authentically Catholic culture and community is that it ultimately comes down to what we love. Naturally, then, the, the, the first step that each of us must, must take is to re-examine who or what it is that we love. This isn't something that we can afford to do only once in our lives or only when we're about to make a big decision, only every now and then. It's something that we must do each and every day because the glitz and glamour of this world competes with God for our love and worship. Make that a part of your examination of conscience every night. Lord, who did I really love today? Thankfully, though, our God is unselfish and generous, and he's inclusive with our love for others and our enjoyment of the things of this world so long as we love him above all things. And so long as we allow um, this deeper love to shape our relationships and our use of things, of the things of this world. True love of God demands, demands, in fact, that we love others, which led servant of God Dorothy Day to once say, and these are really challenging words, I really only love God as much as I love the person I love least. So this is the first way that we can begin to reshape the world around us. We have to examine the object of our deepest love. Having examined our love, we must then take the next step of setting ourselves to the plow by dying to ourselves, by picking up our cross, loving God with our whole mind, heart, and strength. And this is easier said than done which says much more about us than it does about God. As goodness, truth, and beauty itself, as our creator, there's no one and no thing that is more lovable, more intrinsically desirous and good than God. But because we cannot perceive God directly, and because of our fallen natures, our twisted natures, our twisted desires, We have to wage war against ourselves 
so that we can love the God who is love itself and who desires nothing else than to bring us into this love so that we can be fully at peace and beside ourselves with joy. Whereas love of other human beings takes the form of willing and desiring what is good for them, love of God takes the form of worship and adoration. For God is not our equal. He's our creator. He's our savior. He stands above us in majesty and grandeur. And so thanks to the incarnation, God has given his church a very concrete way to express this love and worship. And that is through the church's liturgical life, her public life of prayer and worship, particularly the mass. In becoming like us in every way but sin and through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus Christ has become our high priest, who at this very moment stands before the throne of God the Father and intercedes for us. Right? We, not, we worship Christ because he's divine, but because of his humanity, he intercedes for us on, on our behalf to God the Father. He didn't merely assume a human body. He became like us literally in every way but sin. And so he's counted amongst our number. Right? He's the great bridge that unites divinity and humanity. And this man, Jesus, fully God and fully man, invites us into this divine worship and life of love. But this worship isn't limited to heaven alone, where the angels and the saints dwell, adoring God the Father in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus conveyed his priesthood to the apostles and the apostles to their successors and so on, down to where we unfortunately get Father Andrew, right? It's, <laughs> it's Jesus who speaks, acts, and worships through our bishops and priests and leads us in worship of God the Father. And so by allowing the public liturgy of the church to become the focal point of our lives, we're not only placing worship of God at the very center of our existence, but we're also able to then, and this is important, we can then situate the rest of our life around this primary love. Our day-to-day -day life, our studies, our work, our friendships, our leisure, our family life, our creativity, and everything else is then capable of being put into proper perspective and thereby be properly ordered. Rather than worshiping a lesser good, like a dummy, and committing idolatry in the process, we're able to do all of these things for the love of God, and then offer it back to him as a spiritual sacrifice, united to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Because in the Mass, it's not only the sacrifice of Christ that's offered, it's the sacrifice of the church and her members as well. So that is the primary thing that we should be offering to the Lord during the offertory, along with the money that we tithe, right? We offer to Christ our, our lesser loves. We offer to him our work, our labor, our friendships, everything. We give that to him because when it's done in love of God, it becomes the stuff of a sacrifice. And then we are sent forth to proclaim the gospel, and then to allow the liturgy to spill over into our life beyond the mass, beyond the liturgy, so that the life we live in a very concrete way, week in, week out, day in, day out, issues forth 
from and returns to our love and worship of God in the liturgy, thanks to the continued presence and activity of Christ, our high priest, in the Mass. And this brings us back to the formation of a Catholic culture. If we want to transform the culture in which we live, into which we've been, been born, in which we love, like who doesn't love going to a tailgate and going to an LSU game, right? If we want to transform these things, this culture which we love so dearly, then we have to first set our sight on God by worshiping him alone and then allowing that primary love to shape the rest of our lives. And that's precisely what the monks and nuns of old did when the world around them was falling apart, crumbling before their, before their eyes. And the barbarians were breaking through the gates of the Roman Empire. They ventured into the desert, not to escape the world because the world is evil, but to devote their full attention to the one thing necessary. And through that singular attention to God, they created civilization anew in the desert. That was not their primary intention. That's not why they went out there. But that is what happens when you properly order your loves by placing love and worship of God above all things at the center and then allow that to shape and order the rest of your life, your relationships, your talents, all of it. But we don't need to literally flee into the desert or the bayous, in our case, to imitate these great men and women. Rather, we can instead flee from the culture of death and its disordered loves by remaining in the world and clinging to God in the sacraments, the mass, our communal life together as a church, and then allowing this to form the basis from which we then enter back into the world to redeem our communities and the culture in which we live. As Father Arupe said, our love of God must be what gets us out of bed in the morning. It has to determine what we do with our evenings, how we spend our weekends, how we utilize our gifts, and what we create with our lives. To love God above all things does not entail that we hate or despise this world as such. Because if it did, then we shouldn't care about it. We should allow it to burn. No, it only entails that we hate what is evil and we let go of our lives and the things of this world for his sake. And then we take it back up again and we live in the world in the way that best glorifies him so that the world can finally be what God had intended it to be all along. That's our vocation as, as the baptized faithful. And when we do this, not only individually, but together as a community and a church, when we allow the movement of the liturgy to be the focal point of our lives, and then we make of our lives one prolonged liturgical action, one prolonged sacrifice of praise given to God the Father, then we will slowly but surely, and probably without even realizing it and without even intending it, transform the world around us into the city of God and create a Catholic civilization of love. And in so doing, the world itself, one person, one friendship, one family, one community at a time, will be redeemed by creating a Catholic culture animated by the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So with that, my presentation comes to an end.
before we do q and I just want to take a couple minutes to, um, to share a little bit about the different programs that I oversee and direct at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. So Notre Dame Seminary, it's the second largest American major seminary, um, Catholic major seminary, which means that's where men go for their final preparations for the priesthood, where they study theology and things like that. But it's also a place where, um, where lay men and women are invited to come and study to be formed in the faith by the same professors and in the same way, to a certain extent, that our future priests are also formed. Uh, I actually did my, my graduate work there at the master's level. Me and my wife both did. And it's a tremendous experience. The programs that I oversee now, um, there's, there's two. It's called the Institute for Lay Ecclesial Ministry and the Master of Arts and Pastoral Leadership Programs. And basically, these are holistic formation programs where laymen and women who feel called to serve the Lord in the church, um, in parish and school settings, like parish catechetical leaders, youth ministers, campus ministers, theology teachers, right, the whole gamut, the whole spectrum, they come and they receive not only a, uh, an education in the church's faith, they can, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, and the whole, the whole spectrum of theology courses, but they also are formed in their spiritual life. You know, how to grow closer to the Lord, how to develop a better prayer life and rule of life in their human formation, like how to be more virtuous, how to develop better friendships and self-knowledge, right? Their intellectual life and their theology coursework and in, and in the pastoral dimension, like how to best minister to others and pass on the faith which we've received. So if you're a, um, if you are a graduating senior and you feel like God might be calling you to serve the church in this particular way, then um, I've put out a bunch of info um, on that table over there. I'd be happy to talk with you um, about the programs that we offer. And so you can move to New Orleans, serve the church, earn your master's degree um, on the side, part-time, in as few as three years, and do all of that without breaking the bank because we have some really great scholarship programs that we offer as well. And then the final thing I'll say is a, a plug for this Catholic Art Showcase that the St. Louis the Ninth Art Society, um, which I, um, I co-direct, um, will be putting on at St. John the Evangelist in Prairieville on Friday, May 6th. We're going to transform their activity center into a, a Catholic art gallery with some wonder, the work of some wonderful local Catholic artists. We'll have live music, good drink, good food, things like that. And so you're invited to come out, and you can find the flyers for that over on the table over there. So thank you.